0: You are listening to a podcast from The National. Welcome to The National's Business Extra podcast from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Weekly, we provide insight and additional analysis on the biggest business, economic, and finance stories affecting us here, as well as the wider region and the world. My guest today is the Chief Executive of Kamar Energy and the author of The Myth of the Oil Crisis. He's also our regular energy columnist. Robin Mills, welcome. Um, Hello, everyone. Good to have you here with us. Um, Let's pick up with your column this week um, that you wrote in The National, which was about the Kurdish region of Iraq and how the ambitions for that uh, potential uh, independent country at some point in the future uh, is tied to how well they manage their energy sector. Uh, the last couple of days, there's been some stories coming out about how, for example, um, there's been another arbitration uh, session between the KRG and Danagas, one of the biggest producers in that region, which indicates that things don't always go smoothly for them. But th- th- the point you were trying to make was that they've, they've still got an opportunity right, to, to get things going.
1: Yes, I mean, the Kurdistan region, of course, is holding a referendum shortly on on independence. I think it's widely expected that'll be overwhelmingly in favor. That won't necessarily lead directly to independence. There's still a long and and tricky path, I think. Um, And uh, the uh, central Iraqi government in Baghdad and also the neighboring countries will all all have uh, something to say about that. But if Kurdistan is to become an an independent country, or, or even if it's to stay within Iraq under some perhaps new arrangement, its oil sector is absolutely crucial to to the the economy uh, and it has been to the, the economic development of that region uh, for the for the years so far and the region has has must say has developed very impressively um infrastructure has greatly improved um standard of living has has gone up considerably but of course all of that has been under pressure from uh, the the war against isis which now seems to be entering its last phases within iraq um but of course also the fall in oil prices from the middle of 2014 uh, and the Kurds and their oil sector face a lot of challenges the the lower oil prices of course reducing their revenues making it difficult for them to pay uh, pay the oil companies that their share and for them to pay them their costs uh, these arbitration cases as you say you mentioned the, the darna gas arbitration case which uh, is another interim ruling uh, uh, requiring the Kurds to make some payments that, that uh, just happened recently um, and because of that, to be able to continue the, the pace of development of the sector is is very important. Um, there are a number of major fields in Iraqi Kurdistan, some are producing, some are not producing yet, and the Kurds need to be paying the oil companies regularly and, and having a clear path to development for these these large fields to sustain their, their revenues. Um, there are a couple of large gas fields as a project to export that gas to Turkey, very strategically important for both the Kurdistan region and, and for Turkey. Um, but that, that, pr- that project has been moving very slowly. A lot of capital required, and not really clear where, where it will come from.
0: Two three years ago, um, if you look at the difference between the Kurdish region in terms of energy and the rest of Iraq, the Kurdish region looked the bright the bright spot really, um, and the rest of Iraq, particularly in the south, where you've got big companies like BP, um, it wasn't moving along as people expected. But the gap has somewhat closed, partly because of the challenges in the north. As you said, ISIS and lower oil prices, but also because the, the central government's got its act a bit together in terms of of moving um, product out of out of the south. Does that mean that you there is sort of less leverage in terms of um, what the Kurds might have via via the central government?
1: Well, you know, this this whole relationship has gone through a few phases, and if you go back a few years, that the Kurds were very much dependent on their share of the central government, the federal government budget. Uh, which they were receiving, and, and and so so they were building a state on oil money. But uh, you know, in a funny way, it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't their oil money. It was it was all money, ge- largely being generated in the south of Iraq around Basra. Then they got into a dispute with the federal government o- over their their right to export independently. Their budget was was cut off. They had to generate budget themselves from their own exports, um, and did that uh, you know, with some difficulty, but but also with some success for uh, for a while. And then, of course, post ISIS, there was a new phase of of the relationship where the main Iraqi pipeline from from the Kirkuk fields through Turkey was cut off, uh, and the central government eventually made uh, reached an arrangement with the Kurds to to use their pipeline, which was running through safe territory um, in, into Turkey, um, and that's you know that's still essentially where where we are today. Um, so yes, you know the, the the Kurds have to generate their share of the, of the budget now from from their own fields. The, the development of the Iraqi oil sector, the, the sector primarily in the south, has been has been rocky. Um, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of problems with getting the central government uh, um, to make payments to the oil companies. They've also had budget problems to deliver some of the infrastructure. So the export infrastructure was very constrained for a long time. But, yeah, that sector has made Im- impressive progress. Um, now, if we look at the south of Iraq, which is producing... Um, something in the range of, of, of 4 million barrels per day. The Kurds are producing about 600,000. So you see, yes, you know, the south of Iraq is is, is the bulk of, of the uh, the country's oil production. Um, last year, I think, was very slow in the south. Budgets were cut. Oil companies were told to cut back spending because the, the government really couldn't pay their costs. This year, I think things are looking up. Um, investment is restarting at some fields, and would expect production to to be gro- growing again this year.
0: When when a country like Iraq, that's had so many problems in terms of its energy sector, sees some improvement, is it, there's a temptation to believe that in general the overall energy sector is improving uh, re- with regards to how difficult it's been since 2014, when the peak oil prices um, basically collapsed in a matter of months. Um, and so, but also at the same time. From a wider picture, it causes a problem because when Iraq production comes back, that impacts the overall OPEC, non-OPEC strategy to restrain output. Yet there's that temptation from some producers to actually go ahead and put product onto the market. So, yes, one thing is good. And then on the other, it's it's undermining some of the efforts we're trying to do in, for the rest of the region. So I feel like we're at it. We're strange place at the moment, where I can't really call which factors are going to be more decisive in terms of oil markets going forward. Is it going to be the recovery of major producers like Iraq, or is it going to be how OPEC manages the politics of the oil market?
1: Well, you know, Iraq, of course, is a key player. Iraq has the reserves and the development plans to boost production a lot. The Iraqis have gone along with the OPEC deal so far, you know, without great enthusiasm, and that they've been one of the least compliant countries to the deal. Um, and I think you know, that is a pr- becoming more and more of a sore point with their, their OPEC colleagues uh, who see the Iraqis gaining market share at that expense. And I, and I think that's going to get worse during this year and next year as, as Iraqi production uh, potentially can grow further. I mean, in a, in a wider sense, as you say, Iraq uh, is, is just one kind of facet of the problem. And, and OPEC is trying to manage a number of members who are who would like to grow production. And this is the, the perennial tension within the organization, plus some other members who either can't grow production for various reasons or who would rather restrain it and and, uh, and hope for higher oil prices. So you've got uh, Libya and Nigeria, for example, which, of course, have big political problems. They were exe- exempt from the from the deal to cut production. But yet in recent months, they've recovered quite well. Their production is up strongly, and that's been putting a lot of pressure on oil prices. You have Venezuela, where production is slipping and you know the country seems to be heading in, into a worse political crisis. Uh, and then you have the, the Gulf OPEC members and particularly the Kuwait, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia who have this policy of restraining their production and trying to support prices um, and uh, and have been pushing that through over the past uh, uh, almost a year now. Um, so, yeah, you know, there is a tension between all of these. And uh, there's always some political uh, element, I think, underlying this. But OPEC generally has tried to remain apolitical uh, or at least to skirt around the politics as much as possible and mostly has been successful in that. I mean, even when there have been severe disputes between the members in the past on on a political level, um, nevertheless, OPEC has continued functioning, and that, that's uh and, and we see that, we see that today as well. I think you know the other interesting facet about OPEC these days is the cooperation with non-OPIC, which is a completely new factor. there's in the past there's been vague talk about cooperating with non-OPIC producers, never really come to anything. But the current deal, we have Russia in particular playing a very strong role in actually bringing the deal together and in and in reducing its own production. Uh, and then we have some other non-OPIC members joining that, like Oman, Mexico and Kazakhstan and, and, and a number of other smaller ones. Um, so that is, a, that is a, a new development. And it'll be interesting to see, is this a temporary phase or does this become a permanent feature of the oil market?
0: Russia being involved in this deal is, is fascinating, as, as you rightly point out. Obviously, there's a lot of big political machinations going on elsewhere, not just in energy markets, but to have uh, R- Russia willing to, to restrain its production or at least to comply for now has um, is, is, been a great benefit to OPEC's credibility as still uh, s- an organization that can manage oil markets. There was a time before this when it looked like OPEC was finished you know, as a real credible uh, force in in oil markets. Their overall production share had gone down. Uh, U.S. shale had become much more dominant as a swing um, producer for oil markets. But getting the Russians on board, that seemed like a big game changer.
1: Well, I I think so. You know, the Russians have have cut production as part of this deal. Not as much as maybe it was hoped that they would, but they have cut it to an extent. Uh, And some of the other non-OPEC members they brought in have, have done so as well. I think, you know, a key um, aspect of, of, of Russia coming into this deal was, you know, OPEC in 2014 faced a problem. U.S. shale production was growing very strongly. Oil prices were falling. And at that point, OPEC actually, and particularly Saudi Arabia as, as the effective leader of the organization, decided to step up, step aside and let the market work. Increase production, let prices fall and hope to flush out some of the high cost producers. Um, now, that worked in a sense prices did fall and and US production eventually started falling as well. Um, But of course, at the cost of of low prices and low revenues and and the OPEC countries decided that they they had to reassert their power and and do something to, to, to bring prices back. And I think they were concerned that they couldn't really fight on two fronts. They could not at the same time be trying to reduce production and give up market share to U.S. shale produ- producers, and at the same time having a, a kind of unguarded flank where the Russians would come in and also increase production and take markets from them. Um, you know, the Russian Russia is, is one of the world's top three producers. I mean, Saudi Arabia, the U.S. and Russia all produce about the same amount, um, and Russia has often taken market share from OPEC. So I think f- for having a credible deal, it was important that they were Able to bring in Russia and, and, and a few other members uh, and not have to worry about them boosting production significantly, and and then they could just focus on, on what was happening with shale.
0: And the market share, we're really talking about Asia and predominantly China here. That's where the major battleground is for these big producers. And everyone's been, um, when I say everyone, see the major producers Saudi Arabia, Russia. Um, have been courting the Chinese on many different levels, both economically and politically. But also the Chinese themselves, with their one belt, one road policy, are being much more globally facing, if you like, to get out there and, and, and inc- increase their trade and political influence in the world. So, but at the same time, to add another facet to this, they're having their own economic upheaval as well. They're not the same economy they were two, three years ago in terms of growth. So when we say market share, it's, it the pie doesn't seem to be growing as, as much as it was a few years ago.
1: Well, it's not. And I think, you know, that's this is one of the factors, of course, behind the lower oil price now. You know, yes, every, everybody talks about shale production, but also you need to look at the demand picture and that Chinese demand uh, in particular has slowed down a lot. Chinese growth overall. If we take the official figures, it's still it's still fast by global standards, but it's not the 10% that we got used to. It's uh, you know six and a half percent, and of course that means lower oil demand. But, but it also means there's this whole process of trying to rebalance the Chinese economy towards um, more domestic consumption and a general kind of maturing and evolution of the Chinese economy away from very energy-intensive industries uh, and towards more consumer-led and and uh, and, and uh, light industries. Uh, and services. And so, of course, that, that means even if China is adding a, uh, a certain amount of GDP, that doesn't consume the same amount of oil that that growth would have done uh, back in the mid 2000s when China was really the force that was driving uh, oil prices to, to the record highs of, of that time. So, you know, China, yes, is, is still one of, one of the absolute key global oil markets. As you say, there's a lot of competition. The Russians have a pipeline now that goes directly to China and, uh, and they, they are now a major competitor. Um, but of course, all of the Middle East exporters are, are very much in the in the Chinese market as well, and the U.S. is now in the Chinese market. A, a very interesting development, fairly recent, but the U.S. has now started exporting significant amounts of light crude to to China as well. Um, so yes, that, that's becoming a real a real battleground. Um, obviously, there are other Asian countries which are also significant markets. Um, India is is would be the I think the leading one for growth right now, um, and that's also a very significant. Area of, of, of contest for, for all producers. We saw uh, recently the Russian state company Rosneft buying a stake in, in a big Indian refiner. Saudi Aramco was said to be bidding for that stake as well, but the, the Russians got it. So that, that shows also interest in trying to get into the Indian market. And I think the hope is, you know, after China, India is kind of the next big thing. Um, but I, I don't think personally that, that India will, will be the same weight in, in the oil market that, uh, that China was uh, in the early 2000s
0: you've written many columns for us over the years um focusing on all these different topics uh, but what sticks in my mind uh, is how scathing you've been of the oil majors and how they've they've sp- they spent many years resting on their laurels when times were good do you think if you're giving them a report card now given bp's results this week showed that they're you know turning things around following the gulf of mexico disaster um, shell has been pivoting much more towards specific areas like gas or new technologies um are you are you a lot more do you feel their report card is 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 much stronger now in terms of their strategy and the way they're focusing
1: i think they've delivered a lot recently if we look at the results of all the majors with the exception of Exxon but all, all the others uh in the past few days reported and and they all beat expectations and, and were rewarded with with uh, on the share price and the, cons- the consistent theme was now that they're all cutting costs They've succeeded in bringing down their costs. they improving cash flow from operations, paying down debt. Um, and uh, uh, and that's that's all positive. And that's something that had to happen. I think the majors, um, y- you know, and I'd hope I've not been, uh, you know, solely scathing and negative on the majors because they have had not, a lot of achievements. But you told it to them straight, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, to be honest, I think they, um, and other oil companies as well, in the period of high oil prices, they, they got lazy and... Uh, they ended up with very overstuffed cost structures that were just simply unsustainable. They did projects that never should have been sanctioned, that were never going to make sense, economic sense, except in a, a very sustained high energy price world. Um, it's kind of the inevitable inevitable industry cycle. But yes, they have made a lot of progress as these results show on on now reducing costs and trying to come up with businesses that can be competitive and, and, and profitable and sustainable at $50 a barrel and maybe at $40 a barrel, which is really where they had to be. I think what's interesting, though, if you look at the majors, um, if you go back a few years, they all followed very similar strategies. Not a lot to pick between them. Now, if you look at every major, they're all quite distinct. They're all trying to do different things. Um, obviously, time will tell who, who picked the right strategy, and maybe they'll all work in different ways. Um, but I think you know Shell, of course, is very much uh, above all of them, gone for gas by buying BG, and uh, which is, of course, a big gas, liquefied natural gas producer. Um, Shell was always a gas-heavy company anyway, you know. now even more so. So they're betting on gas as the fuel of the future. BP has made a lot of interesting bets in new areas and, and big new assets. They had to rebuild their portfolio after the, the Gulf of Mexico disaster. When they sold a lot of assets, they needed some growth positions. And they've picked up some interesting things in, in Egypt, um, in northwest Africa and, and elsewhere. Um, Exxon and Chevron, the two U.S. majors, very heavy on shale. Buying big positions there in the Permian Basin in Texas. So, uh, I mean, all the majors to some extent are doing shale, but of course the U.S. ones are are doing it rather more than their uh, than their European competitors. And then Total has been very aggressive in the Middle East. We've seen Total picking up assets recently in Abu Dhabi, in Qatar, in in Iran. now signing a big deal in Iran. Uh, and also going probably more than any of the other majors into alternative energy, looking at solar power and batteries and other things. So, you know, very interesting. I think if you've got a view on the, on the future of the oil market and the future of the, the oil majors, um, you've got quite a di- different set of choices as to what, what to invest in, depending on where you see the market going.
0: I mean, shale was the big disruptor. And as you said, some of the the, the, the oil majors have decided to jump on that bandwagon and kind of own it. But going going forward, they are leaner, but the question is how much investment will they be doing we the, depending on is it wood mac who said something like 300 to 400 billion dollars of investment has been shelved in the last 3 years as a result of the lower oil prices is that investment going to come back now and is it going to be more targeted is it going to be smarter and can it even compete with sort of the nimbleness of these new shale tight oil producers
1: yes i mean we hear a lot from the international energy agency in particular this idea that you know huge amounts of investment have been cut and And this creates worries about future oil supply. Are we investing enough? We heard the same from Amin Nasser, the CEO of Saudi Aramco, a few days ago. But I think, um, you know, yes, I mean, a lot of investment was cut. But we've got to say, well, you know, how much of that investment was really wise, productive investment? And how much would have been invested in things that, that simply don't make sense at in a 50 dollar or 40, so it's $40 been a healthy process world. to a certain extent yeah, I think a lot of projects were were thrown out because they weren't viable. some of them have been rethought and and uh, you know BP is is saying one of its Gulf of Mexico projects has come back with half of the original capital cost and now it's a, a viable project and that had to happen. So if you see spending being cut by 50 percent, that doesn't mean you get 50 percent less oil because of course the projects that are done are, are done much more efficiently
0: and I guess investors have got used to these big dividends they got used to these big numbers when the earnings came out and now it's a little bit more rational in terms of the of the, of the the results that are coming from these big energy companies and maybe we have to get used to that in the same way that we had to get used to used to oil under $50 a barrel when we were used to it at over 100 um it's just a matter of of adjusting rather than it being right or or wrong
1: well you know when i started my career in the oil business we we were at uh, times down below $10 a barrel you know, and in those days, okay, you know, fine inflation and everything, but in those days, of course, we would have thought $50 was an, was an amazing price. Um, so, yes, you know, the oil industry is, I think, a lot more adaptable than people give it credit for, and it is capable of being being competitive and, and a successful business and a successful source of energy at these prices with the improvements that have been made.
0: And when you started out, you were an engineer?
1: I started out as a geologist.
0: Wow, okay. So you studied geology?
1: Yes, did you? Ge- geology at University and... Uh, Joined Shell after university. worked worked in geology, um, which I think is a great. Uh, you know, Shell is a great company. A company I have a lot of respect for, and learnt a lot at. And, and geology is a great place to learn the business.
0: And Shell brought you out to the Middle East initially. That's that's how you ended up uh, here. and And you decided to stay on. and And what was the decision making behind that? When you know you could have obviously continued with, with a with a, a more sort of straightforward career, I guess, with one of the big majors.
1: Well, you know, I worked a lot on the Middle East with Shell. Uh, and I, a lot of their new business development in the region, I worked on pretty much every Middle East country at, at some point. Um, I did other things as well. You know, I worked on Russia, which was um, in the early 2000s with, with President Putin coming to power, which was a very interesting time. Um, but my, you know, my perspective on the Middle East was, you know, this is the center of the global oil business. It has the bulk of the world's reserves of oil and gas and and, uh, and a large part of the production. So for someone who's Building a long-term career in the energy industry, uh, this is the place to be for me. Um, I think it's also a place that you know, uh, often widely in the industry is, is you know, surprisingly not too no, well known, not too well understood. A lot of the oil is, of course, controlled by national oil companies, um, and uh, and so if you're not in those companies, it's hard to know exactly what they're doing, how they run, what their resources are like. Um, so these were things I felt I had insights into, but I was always interested in for myself and about having a, a wider perspective on, on the industry, uh, and that's eventually why I ended up setting up my own consultancy. And we, of course, cover not only oil and gas, but we cover the whole energy spectrum, including renewable energy, which is becoming more and more of a factor in this region. Um, I think that that kind of breadth uh, is something I wouldn't have had the, the opportunity to do within a, a major oil company. And, and also, and you learn Arabic
0: as uh, well, which means it's definitely, uh, for you, you, you made an investment in this region, personally.
1: Well, absolutely. You know, and it, uh, it opens doors. And uh, there's obviously some parts of the region where, you know, English is not so widely spoken and, and Arabic is, is certainly useful. Um, yeah, and absolutely. I think, you know, as I say, having identified this region as, as the core one for me and, and my business, then uh, makes uh, sense to be as, as deeply invested and committed as possible.
0: You've written also for us about the difficulty in attracting talent now to the to the energy sector. It, there was a time when it was easy, but um, relatively speaking, but now it's become much harder. I can't imagine many. There are many students like you out there studying geology, preparing for a life in the energy sector as they would have done in, in your era.
1: Well, you know, I was back at my my old university uh, a few months ago for a for a a reunion and and I was there with the geology department and there were a lot of people studying geology there and uh, you know some of them I think interested in the energy industry so uh, I find that encouraging but but I think there is a general trend certainly in in the west that the oil and gas industry is seen as as less attractive I mean the oil price fall doesn't doesn't help of course but in a in a longer term it's seen as a you know widely as a dirty a polluting industry a sunset industry which is eventually going to be phased out in favor of of renewable energy and other other kinds of say new that energy. about
0: journalism as well. By the way, that we're a sunset industry on our way out, particularly print journalism. But somehow we're still here. So I mean, for the, for the for those out there thinking about the energy sector, it's not going away anytime soon. I imagine.
1: No, I think look, journalism and the industry industry uh, fulfil crucial roles, and you know maybe in business will be done differently. No, no, no doubt. But uh, but the need is still there. You know, we're not making uh, horse drawn buggies here. We're making things that are crucial for uh, for uh, civilisation. And and yes, the energy industry, oil and gas, I think will continue to be a major one throughout the next few decades, and offers a very re- rewarding career. It has to improve its environmental performance, and that's something I've always been pushing. It needs to be playing a part in solutions to climate change. It does do to an extent at the moment, but but still not not enough. Um, I think if it can do that, it's got a much better chance of attracting the, the next generation of new, of new talent. But we do see, you know, I see this from from Western students. Um, some reluctance maybe to go into the oil and gas industry but i think if we look at asia we look at the middle east so we look at india and china and so on many many very talented students coming out and i I think this will change the the demographics of of people working in the oil industry very significantly
0: robin mills has been my guest today chief executive of Kamara energy and one of our regular columnists at the national thank you for being with us thank you very much you can read his columns as well as listen and watch and read other stories at www.thenational.ae. Thank you for listening. You can also subscribe to this and our other shows on iTunes. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. Join us again next week.